This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good morning to all of you. It is a great honor and privilege to welcome His Holiness to Stanford University and to the Medical School Symposium on Buddhism and Neuroscience. The inspiration and planning for this event that we have before us today commenced about three years ago um, when my wife Peggy, who had taken a course with Tenzin Tathang, came up with the idea of inviting His Holiness to Stanford University. Some dialogue and communication took place, and then a year ago we received the wonderful news that this event was to happen. And this engaged a whole spectrum of interactions across the Stanford University campus, including, of course, our close participation with Scotty McLennan and Religious Life. And it is brought forward today an event which is, I think, historic, important, and I believe inspirational. The last decades have really brought much insight into the workings of the mind and the brain. Some have called this point in our history the era of the brain because we believe that the opportunities for better understanding the way brain works, consciousness occurs, behavior evolves, is best done in a broad, interdisciplinary manner. We founded the Neuroscience Institute at Stanford University a couple of years ago. And I'm very pleased that Dr. Bill Mobley, who will be leading this session today, is the director of that institute. The institute is really an opportunity to learn deeply about the interconnections of the brain using the most modern technologies from imaging to molecular medicine to the intersections of psychology and their relationships to ethics, law, and all of the biomedical sciences and engineering. It's interesting that um, at this juncture of great opportunity in science, we also are witnessing today in this country an extraordinary anti-science movement. Some of this emanates in Washington, but it really extends across the land. It's a disturbing movement. It questions the validity of what we think about by way of our empiricism and experimentation. And I think that it, of course, has parts of its roots in the challenge between the extraordinary sophistication of investigation and knowledge that has accrued through science and the concerns increasingly expressed by the rapid movement into fundamentalist religious thinking. 
And ironically, just as there is this anti-science concern, in some sectors of our community, there are equal expressions of concern about religion. It's a bit ironic that um, the neuroscience community has raised questions about whether symposia like this should occur. I think that is a tragic flaw um, because we are about interacting with each other in ways that create elucidation, that allow us to explore more deeply who we are, where we've come from, and what we're about to be. So today's event is an opportunity to do such an exploration. This is not about trying to apply scientific method to religion or faith, nor is it about trying to apply faith to science. It's about accepting the reality that these are part of the human dimension. And as His Holiness taught us yesterday, it is really not a matter of the extremes of anti-science or anti-religion. It's around the boundaries and where they overlap and connect. I'm very proud of the fact that Dr. Bill Mobley agreed um, to carry out this event today. I remember uh, when I first posed the concept to him uh, after he became quite pale. <laughs> he began to engage with his extraordinary energy, intellectual rigor, enthusiasm, and support. And I think today's event is a culmination of really the excellence that has unfolded. So I want to thank him in particular, and of course thank the panelists for being here, and most especially His Holiness for making the extraordinary trip to be with us today, as we have the opportunity to learn from each other so that we could find a better way for each other in the world of today and tomorrow. I'm very pleased now to welcome the director of our Neuroscience Institute and the person who has led uh, this event today, Dr. Bill Mobley. and a very hearty welcome to all of you. Uh, we have a big job ahead of us. Uh, we have a job that's focused on finding, if possible, some common ground between neuroscience, the discipline of neuroscience, and the wonderful tradition of Buddhist contemplation. It's a big challenge. It's one we gladly accept and we move forward with. We are incredibly excited today. His Holiness Energy, for neuroscience and for understanding other cultures <clears throat> has excited us and, and has guided us and has motivated us, and we're so pleased you're with us today. Thank you so much for being with us. And thanks to the panelists, who will have many opportunities to provide you with their ideas of what goes on in their disciplines, and we hope that you'll enjoy the session and the afternoon session as well. Now, I thought, in terms of overview, I would cover some basic material to provide a context. So I'll be using slides. We are interested in moving toward an understanding of brain and mind. And there are two cultures represented on the stage. One culture, perhaps represented by this image, of neuroscientists. The other culture, represented by this image, the Buddhists. Neuroscientists engage in studies to understand how the brain works. They believe strongly 
that our brains are us, that what we see and what we think, our deepest thoughts, our greatest hopes, our greatest desires are in the brain. Here's an experiment carried out by Botvinnik and all. I've entitled it Imaging Empathy, empathy being the ability to identify with and understand another's feelings and thoughts and motives. What's happening in this experiment is that brain activations are being examined in people that are perceiving pain on another person's face. And what's quite remarkable is that the areas that are activated, as shown here in red and yellow, are the same areas that are activated if the subject himself or herself feels the pain. We're imaging empathy. We're imaging the ability in the brain to relate to others in pain. Now, on the, on the right, we have a Buddhist monk, and he's doing something very interesting. He's also pursuing the mind through contemplation. In this case, we bet that he's uh, contemplating, meditating on compassion. Two cultures, two very different cultures, two very highly motivated cultures. And the question for today is simply this, is simply this. Can neuroscientists, with their tools and concepts, bring to Buddhists with their wonderful contemplative practices something special and vice versa? And can the two of them together be more effective in understanding brain and mind. Now, why would they want to work together? Why is this important? Because they both understand the importance of alleviating suffering. Here's a young woman who sits quite sadly, I think. Suffering is prevalent. Think about all the sources of suffering in your own lives. Psychiatric disorders are extremely prevalent. For example, chronic pain is extremely prevalent. We wish the both of us both cultures, to deal with suffering. Neuroscience responses to suffering are these. We investigate how the brain registers suffering from any cause. We examine the physiological basis for brain disorders that cause suffering. We define mechanisms of brain dysfunction, and we hope to develop methods for treatment. And you'll hear about these advances today. As I said, for a neuroscientist, brain is mind. We know that we work at various levels of nervous system organization, from the operation of genes, which make molecules, molecules which allow cells to be created and form and function. Here we're talking about neurons, the information processing cells of the brain. Neurons link together to form neuronal circuits, and neuronal circuits mediate cognition and behavior. And, and notice that the arrows don't just go up, they also go down. Now today, most of our discussion will be at this level, the idea of neuronal circuits acting to create cognition and behavior. Here's an experiment. It's a very interesting one, I think. In this case, subjects were given thermal uh, stimuli of increasing intensity while being uh, imaged, while their brains were being imaged. And what you see here in going from lower temperature to higher temperature is an increasing activation of regions of the brain shown here in red and yellow. And when the experiment was over, they broke the code and they discovered that those regions which were lighting up were lighting up precisely in register with the person's perception of the intensity of pain. So here we see that brain activation in these nuclei correlates with pain perception. Neuroscientists are begin beginning to understand not just how the brain works, 
but how the brain allows us to understand ourselves. There are also Buddhist responses to suffering. Understanding the cause of suffering through first-person introspection and contemplation. Encouraging ethical conduct to reduce behaviors that lead to suffering. Promoting psychological balance, enhancing the stability of various and virtuous qualities of the mind. Developing motivation to generate altruistic intention toward all sentient beings. And cultivating wisdom, that is insight that counteracts suffering. And Buddhists have methods as well. Here are four young monks engaging in debate. And what this monk is doing, and I've been shown this by my colleague, Philippe Golden, this monk is saying to the monk sitting, here's a proposition. Let's debate this. Let's understand what your mind believes about this. And through rigorous, thoughtful debate, monks also probe suffering. But there's a disconnection. Though both neuroscience and Buddhism want very much to alleviate suffering, there is relatively little interaction and limited collaboration. Why? I list four reasons. These are distinct cultures arising in very different places. But let me say about the geography issue, we can take care of that now. Modern technologies and transportation and communication make the geography not a problem. There are different views of brain and mind. Here I show three views of brain and mind. I've already told you that for neuroscience, uh, mind is brain. But there are other traditions. In fact, there's a Western tradition uh, indicated on the bottom here saying that mind and brain are distinct. Let me read from Descartes in 1637. The soul by which I am what I am is entirely distinct from body and is even more easy to know than is the latter. And even if body were not, the soul would not cease to be what it is. We don't work there anymore. Most of us, however pervasive that those sets of ideas were, and though they continue to exist to some extent in our society, we know at least from our studies in neuroscience over very many years that there's an intense, at least, interaction between brain and mind. And in fact, in this, we certainly share some comradeship with Buddhists, who I would argue operate at the second level, where mind and brain are distinct but closely interacting. And here a quote from His Holiness in a recently published book. Though heavily contingent upon a physical base, including neural networks, brain cells, and sensory faculties, the mental realm enjoys a status separate from the material world. From the Buddhist perspective, the mental realm cannot be reduced to the world of matter, though it may depend upon that world to function. Well. We may differ with the Buddhists in precisely our view of brain and mind. But what we can say is within the red box, there is immense possibilities for understanding, for robust exchange of ideas, and for developing at least those correlations of brain and mind that help us understand ourselves and help us alleviate suffering. A third disconnection is that Buddhism is incorrectly defined as a religion only. And here again, I quote His Holiness. So one fundamental attitude shared by Buddhism and science is the commitment to keep searching for reality by empirical means and to be willing to discard accepted or long-held positions if our search finds that the truth is different. Buddhism is committed to empirical inquiry, as is neuroscience. And finally, pursuit of knowledge through different methods is something that characterizes these two cultures. Neuroscientists typically engage in third-person observations. We use powerful tools, 
We examine phenomena under conditions in which we reduce complexity. At several different levels of the brain, we operate to examine structure and function, and we have robust strategies to analyze results. Buddhists also have methods. They engage in first-person introspection and the development of refined attention to carry out contemplative investigations, to enhance reasoning, and to examine the inner mental experiences and the nature of reality. We both have our methods. And in fact, as indicated earlier, empiricism is a powerful force that links Buddhism and neuroscience. Quoting again, in one sense, the methods of science and Buddhism are different. Scientific investigation proceeds by experiment using instruments that analyze external phenomena, whereas contemplative investigation proceeds by the development of refined attention, which is then used in the introspective examination of inner experience. But both share a strong empirical base. The question then is, is there an ability working together to understand brain and mind? And a final quote. This is the question posed by His Holiness. Can we envision a scientific methodology for the study of consciousness whereby a robust first-person method, which does full justice to the phenomenology of experience, can be combined with the objectivist perspective of the study of the brain? We hope the answer is yes, and today's discussion will pursue that. We hope that we can develop bridging methods to take, to take advantage of our unique experiences and, and powerful tools. Neuroscience with its concepts and tools and methods, Buddhists with their insights and meditative practice, with the goal being to understand brain and mind. There are certain concepts that we don't examine in neuroscience and that would not be profitable points for discussion today. And I mention here reincarnation, karma, dependent origination, and enlightenment. I'm not saying that these concepts won't come up at all, but my guess is that we won't spend much time on them because they really aren't things that we understand much about in neuroscience. We'll avoid them. But here are the questions. <laughs> By the way, we neuroscientists avoid all kinds of things they don't understand, so not to worry. But at least we're honest about it. <clears throat> here are some questions for our se session on, on craving. We want to know something about how craving is defined, how it, how it arises. How can we intervene to modify craving? And how can neuroscientists and Buddhists work together to study craving? These will be the main points of this first session. And so let me introduce today's panelists. First, the neuroscientists. Howard Fields is professor of neurology and physiology at UCSF, director of the Wheeler Center for Addiction, and a leading investigator in mechanisms of pain and addiction. William Newsom is a professor of neurobiology at Stanford a leading investigator in exploring mechanisms of perception and decision-making. Brian Knudsen is associate professor of psychology, and he studies the neural basis of emotion. Philippe Golden is a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Psychology, and he's very interested in studies of neural mechanisms of cognition and mood. Our Buddhist scholars include Carl Bielefeld, who is professor of religious studies at Stanford, and director of Stanford University's Asian Religions and Cultures Initiative. Karma Lekshe Tomo is assistant professor of theology at the University of San Diego. She's an ordained nun and has a PhD in comparative philosophy. And Alan Wallace, who has his PhD in religious studies from Stanford, is president of the Santa Barbara Institute for Consciousness Studies and the author of many books and papers on Buddhist thought 
and contemplation. Tupton Jimpa is the translator for His Holiness and a wonderful colleague, a confidant, a friend, who himself is now the director of an institute uh, for Tibetan classics. And of course, His Holiness, our very honored guest. With that, I would like to turn to His Holiness for a few opening comments, if you will. But that's fine, if you wish to come. I caught him in the middle of a coffee break. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> sorry. First of all, I would like to first of all, I would like to take the opportunity to extend my greetings. Yeah. <laughs> uh, first of all, I would like to take the opportunity to uh, extend my greetings. No? Is it on? It's on. I think First of all, I would like to extend my greetings to this eminent and famous University of Stanford for hosting this dialogue between Buddhist contemplative tradition and science. Uh, I think uh, when the people are here, the dialogue Buddhism and science. I think this word a little bit uh, the, too generalized. Uh, too generalized. <clears throat> uh, so I uh, explain something uh, to make clear. I think firstly, uh, the basic Buddhist system uh, is, I think the Juden Debu Dewa, that is our chatiyari. One of the fundamental principles that underlies Buddhist system of investigation is the recognition of the law of cause and effect. Uh, <clears throat> so, any change, there must be some basis. So the Buddhist concept about Buddhahood or salvation, uh, there must be some kind of basis which exists by nature. So therefore, uh, uh, usually the way to explain about the Buddhist sort of what's the Buddhist path. That is the shingo nature. Tell it then, lam trevejimba. Tell it then, 
Jebu Tobdaji. So because of this emphasis on the understanding of the relationship of cause and effect to uh, account for any observable change, uh, if you look at the, the entire Buddhist system of thought, um, you will see distinctions made between uh, understanding the nature of reality and, then, and um, understanding the path, the spiritual path, that is based upon that uh, nature of reality and then the resultant states of uh, realization or perfection that is achieved as a, as a result of uh, engaging in, on that path. So therefore, <clears throat> uh, I usually divide it three parts. First part, Buddhist science, which uh, explaining about the reality that something like Buddhist science. Then second, because of that reality, on the basis of that, then the Buddhist theory or Buddhist sort of philosophy, possibility to change. So that's Buddhist concept or Buddhist philosophy or metaphysics. Then, uh, therefore, some, some kind of, let us try to do something to, in order to change our emotion or in order to uh, change, uh, transform some, some, kind of, some kind of the better, better being. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so now, the first part, Buddhist science, uh, external things, or matters, and internal thing, experience, uh, experience mental or mental state, or emotions, two things. Uh, so, modern science, and I think Buddhism in general, particularly the Sanskrit tradition, the investigation uh, is most important part in order to know the reality. Uh, so the investigation is so important. If you find through investigation uh, something which contradictory with uh, literature or even Buddha's own word, then we have the liberty to take sort of, I said, either rejection or the re reinterpreter. So therefore, many uh, ancient great master uh, Buddhist, sort of Buddhist tradition, you see, they utilize you see, that kind of liberty to examine Buddhist, Buddha's own word. So therefore, <clears throat> uh, our way of thinking to investigate Investigation uh, is important. That I think very similar to that of the modern science, scientific sort of way of search. So the inzada kanda tempat sengen cipu chaimdo. So in so far as both modern science and Buddhism is engaged in the quest for understanding the nature of reality, there is a commonality. So last, 
now, I think, more than two decades. Uh, at the beginning, mainly due to my own personal sort of curiosity, but then later, more people, more Buddhist, uh, Buddhist scholars now involved. So, uh, so up to now, uh, see, it's it become quite clear the four major fields: uh, cosmology, and then uh, neurobiology, then physics, subatomic, including quantum physics, then uh, psychology. These four fields. So as far as matter is concerned, the modern uh, science have, I think, much advanced. Although Buddhists, the last 2,500 years, Buddhists uh, try to investigate these things, but compare modern scientific sort of finding, we are a bit backward. <laughs> so therefore, uh, for Buddhist, it is extremely useful to learn from scientific sort of findings, scientific explanation. Then, up to now, about mind, about emotion, in this respect, seems Buddhist sort of literature have sort of more explanation or more experience. So, therefore, uh, in the field of Buddhist science, now here now is some, what's it, some common ground, and a similar method to investigate with skepticism. Doubt, because doubt brings question. Question brings investigation. Investigation brings satisfactory, I think, understanding or awareness about the reality. So therefore, the uh, last more than two decades sort of uh, dialogue between science and, and Buddhist science, this is, seems quite interesting. So, uh, uh, now I think that uh, initially, me personally, you see, initiated but now, more and more uh, Buddhists, uh, I think the Buddhist, what is it? Uh, I think the Tibetan Buddhist authorities, right? The senior, senior scholars and senior authorities from the monasteries. Oh, now, now they also begin to realize this is something useful. <laughs> at, at the beginning, uh, uh, our approach. Uh, regarding our approach, they are a little skeptical. <laughs> so that means, you see, the truth speaks itself. So therefore, uh, I feel it is quite uh, interesting to discuss these uh, reality, external matters, and the internal our experience. So, some kind of joint, joint effort it's good. So therefore, I'm extremely happy to see, to see and more and more people and more and more as a day, scientists now showing interest. Now, this is one example. So uh, I'm very happy. And indeed, 
I feel great honor is it, to participate here, although my knowledge very limited. Thank you. His Holiness is uh, nothing if not completely convincing of uh, the wisdom of his very, very thoughtful uh, projections about what neuroscience and Buddhism might do together, and we really appreciate that comment. When I was in Dharamsala, we talked for a couple of hours, and three times he said, why don't you go measure something? <laughs> so, I okay. And today we're going to have a first early look at what we should be measuring. And so for the first uh, speaker, I'd like Alan Wallace to uh, hold forth. And I will try to get your uh, presentation up, Alan. Good morning. I've been asked this morning to speak about the nature of craving from a Buddhist perspective. And before going right to the definition of craving, how Buddhists understand the nature of craving, I'd like to provide a very brief context. And the context is a theme that crops up in the Buddhist tradition, as well as various religious, philosophical traditions. His Holiness himself mentioned it yesterday. And that is that the very meaning of life is the pursuit of happiness. It's not just an Asian notion, it's not just a Western, it's not just modern or ancient. It seems to be quite a widely sounded message throughout the great wisdom traditions of the East and West. But it raises immediately a question, if the meaning of life is a pursuit of happiness, what kind of happiness? We can have the next slide, please. So immediately, now speaking from the Buddhist perspective, a distinction can be drawn between, let's say, a mundane approach in modern psychology and positive psychology, it's called the pursuit of hedonic well-being. And this is an orientation towards the pursuit of happiness that is aimed at experiencing pleasurable stimuli, finding somebody in the world, finding situations, jobs, possessions, and so forth that will make you happy. It might even be generating thoughts or images, ideas that make you happy. A stimulus comes up, whether by way of the senses or your mind. It comes up, the response is one of pleasure. The stimulus goes away, the pleasure vanishes. We also may pursue the freedom of suffering in the same way, trying to avoid unpleasant stimuli, whether by way of the physical senses or the mind. I would say this is analogous to the hunter-gatherer phase of human civilizations where we go out into the world and we forage. Who out there can make me happy? Come hither. So a hunter-gatherer approach. From the Buddhist perspective, the pursuit of such pleasure is not the meaning of life, unless you're a rabbit. But if we are to draw on our human intelligence human imagination, the depths of the human spirit, perhaps we can do something even more than that. 
And this brings us to what may be called a supermundane approach. Psychologists nowadays, philosophers have called it the pursuit of eudaimonic well-being, a sense of true flourishing. And this comes from cultivating one's heart, one's mind, one's consciousness. And in the Buddhist context, this would be by way of an integrated pursuit. On the one hand, an explicit pursuit of genuine well-being, a sense of, of mental health and balance, a sense of well-being and happiness, fulfillment, flourishing that comes by way of cultivating your own mind. But that pursuit of happiness must, in the Buddhist context, be integrated with the pursuit of truth. It's not simply a matter of faith, belief, prayer, and so forth, but it is the truth that will make you free, the truth that will yield such a profound dividend of well-being. So the pursuit of happiness and truth are profoundly and inextricably interrelated. But once again, in the Buddhist context, that pursuit of happiness and truth must also be integrated with the pursuit of virtue and ethical life. So I would say this is analogous to the cultivator phase of human civilization, which where you have your own plot of land and you start cultivating that which you seek, the harvest that you seek, rather than simply going out into the world and trying to find it ready-made. Which brings us then to the definition of craving. Simply put, a, a kind of desire, not equivalent to desire, but a kind of desire in which one falsely superimposes or projects agreeable, desirable, pleasure-making qualities upon an object. That object could be another person, a situation, a job, a bank account, an insurance policy. Superimposes agreeable qualities upon the object, cognitively screens out its disagreeable qualities. Craving blinds ones to the disagreeable or unpleasant qualities of the object. And then with craving, one yearns for, one desires the object, seeing it as the actual source of one's pleasure, one's happiness, one's security. Feeling the source of one's pleasure is outside of oneself. So in short, then, the definition of craving is not a matter of amplitude, how much you desire, nor is it a matter of what you're desiring. It's a matter of the way in which you desire it. And in the Buddhist definition, craving by definition, entails a misapprehension of reality. Common objects of craving hardly need any commentary. This is a real quick slide. Wealth and power, for example. Sensual objects and pleasures. That would include all types of material acquisitions, but again, the less tangibles. Praise, the high we get when somebody says something really nice about us, especially if we respect them. And then generally this fourth category, the esteem of others, the affection, the acceptance, the acknowledgement, the love and admiration, and feeling therein lies my happiness. If people would only love me more or respect me more, if I could have a bit more fame, that would do it. Objects of craving. What kind of factors give rise to craving? Buddhism has basically a triadic approach to this. On the one hand, you won't crave something that doesn't exist. At least normal people don't. So first of all, it's got to be out there. The possibility of fame, or maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's cigarettes, maybe fill in the blank space. But it's got to be out there, and then you have something to rivet your attention upon. But if craving is to arise, bearing in mind desires are not necessarily craving. Desires may be wonderfully meaningful. But if craving is to arise, the mind has to be primed in a certain way such that when you engage with that object, it triggers craving and therefore the distortion in your perception and appreh apprehension of that object that you then crave. 
But Buddhism has always acknowledged, as Professor Mobley was pointing out earlier, that there's a profound interaction between our subjective experience and the biological mechanisms or processes that are the necessary support for those subjective experiences. So there must be a biological basis for craving as well. So to bring this into a diagram, our beloved diagrams, the sequence here, you have got a craved object out there, something you think it might do it for me. If only I had that, I would find the happiness that I, that I seek, that fulfillment I haven't found yet. It's not enough for it to be out there. You have to have it come into the field of your sensory experience. You have to engage with it somehow. Not only does it have to come into the field of your experience, but you have to then have to select out of the mass of inputs right now from our sensory environment. You have to focus your attention. It captures your attention. And then you need to recognize it for what it is. Ah, that's something I might like. So all that's pretty straightforward. And now comes the great grab bag. The, the psychological process is priming craving, and they can be so multifaceted, coming from so many sources, one's social environment, one's personal history, one's education, a myriad of sources, but they set you up. How you've been thinking, the kind of attitudes you've been cultivating, your general notion, how do you find happiness? You set up, and then comes the fruit of craving, which raises then the question, how can we possibly intervene? That is, if craving is something that is deleterious, or obstructive to our pursuit of happiness, may give us some kickback in terms of these transient pleasures from a pleasant stimulus, but if it's actually obstructing our pursuit of genuine happiness or flourishing, where can we intervene? Where can we create a break in that causal sequence? Number one, you might try to do away with a craved object. You might try prohibition and make sure there's no alcohol around. See whether that does it to overcome craving for alcohol. We tried that one. You might see if you can avoid that craved object coming into your sphere of sensory experience. So for example, if one is an alcohol, you might want not, not want to frequent bars. Maybe not a good idea, or keep alcohol in your home. Keep it out of your field of experience. Another point, though, and a crucial one for Buddhist practice is you encounter the object, it comes into the field of experience, you attend to it, you recognize it, and now what? Do you respond with craving or not? And this is where our metacognitive ability, the ability to monitor our own mental states, monitor our thoughts, monitor our desires, kind of have a dashboard for the mind. So from moment to moment, you kind of know what's arising in your mind and how you're engaging with and responding to the environment. Here, metacognition can come in and you may see, aha, there's a possibility of craving arising here, but I think I'll bring in another perspective. And you may avert the actual arriving of craving and respond in some other way that actually is conducive to your own and others' well-being rather than obstructing it. But even once craving has arisen, a rather simple form of craving, you're passing by the Haagen-Dazs ice cream store and you're full and you're looking at your weight and you're looking at your weight and you're looking at the Haagen-Dazs ice cream store and you see the craving arriving, arising. If you can intervene with metacognition, you may be able to step back and see, here's craving and here are my other values. I think I'll walk right on. At least it becomes a possibility, a possibility for choice. So the metacognitive awareness of what's going on in one's own mental response to the environment is a key to choice. 
the no, whole notion of choice is, in the Western tradition is deeply tied in with the theme of freedom of will, which often presumes that there is an independent agent, a self, an ego, a homunculus, who is calling the shots, who is in charge of the mind and brain. Exactly that notion of an unchanging, unitary, independent self is something that is refuted in Buddhism on empirical grounds and rational grounds, not simply as a matter of dogma. Nevertheless, despite the fact that Buddhism refutes the existence of such an independent, authoritative entity called the self or the ego, nevertheless choices are made. That is, Buddhism does not advocate a type of predetermination that everything is simply set up in advance in a mechanistic fashion where the individual has no say in the matter at all. It, it calls us to re-question or question, re-evaluate the very nature of personal identity. So then we have some choices again in terms of choices. How do we make our choices? The choices we make may occur under the influence of what Buddhists call mental afflictions, such as craving. Craving arises, dominates the mind, and we make a choice. Hostility arises, dominates the mind, we make a choice. Sometimes we're befuddled, confused, in disarray, and we make a choice. Those choices are often impediments to our own and others' well-being. On the other hand, we may cultivate qualities of mind, mental processes, attitudes, ways of thinking that are very conducive to our own well-being, such as wisdom and compassion. These may also come, rise, and dominate our minds on occasion. Not only wisdom and compassion, but a myriad of other qualities of mind that are often called virtues. And we make our choice. Choices made under the influence of virtues may be conducive to our own and others' well-being. There, in short, is a point for contemplative practice, spiritual practice more generally. The final point here, the large framework of Buddhist practice. What do Buddhists do? In the pursuit of happiness, how do you go about doing it? What's the framework for Buddhist practice? And the foundation, the absolutely indispensable foundation, His Holiness, of course, alluded to it yesterday when he summarized ethics as coming to the world in a spirit of service, trying to alleviate the suffering of others, to bring about happiness for others, and at least avoiding injury. That is really the nutshell of Buddhist ethics. And without that, there simply is no other, there's no Buddhist practice. You can meditate for as long as you like, but if no ethics, it doesn't work. Ethics is an indispensable foundation. Upon the basis of that, then there are a myriad of techniques for balancing the mind, developing very focused attention, but also developing mental health and balance in exceptional ways making one's mind, one's body-mind, a suitable vessel for the third element of Buddhist practice, and that is the pursuit of radically transformative contemplative insight. So each of these levels of Buddhist practice can be correlated with a certain mode of flourishing, flourishing in our social environment with others, flourishing psychologically, that one's mind is balanced and healthy, and it gives rise to the symptom of a sense of well-being and happiness not because you're attending to pleasurable stimuli, but because the mind is balanced and whole. The original meaning of sanity, exceptional sanity. And finally, coming back to profound religious truths, and I believe there are such things, profound religious truths, truths that actually make us free. This is the, the final cutting edge of Buddhist inquiry, contemplative insight that brings about a sense of spiritual flourishing and the radical transformation and liberation of the mind so that we are freed from mental afflictions of all kinds, as well as their resultant suffering. So that's a thumbnail sketch of craving.
Thank you, Alan. And now, Howard, I wonder if you would come up and, and continue the dialogue. Thank you, Bill. Quite an honor to be here. Uh, also a difficult two acts to follow. Uh, so how many neuroscientists are there in the audience? Yeah. How many spiritual practitioners do we have in the audience? Okay. Well, I'd like to begin my talk by saying that neuroscientists actually are human. <laughs> so, uh, my take on, on cravings is a little bit different than Alan's. Uh, it will be an explanation at quite a reductionist uh, view. We're dealing with the same things, and I was very gratified uh, when His Holiness separated psychology from neuroscience as two separate sciences, which they indeed are. And I am not going to present a psychology point of view. I'm going to be really presenting the neurobiology. And I have about 10 minutes to explain how the brain works <laughs> and where craving comes from. But I've been told this is a highly educated audience. So let's see, I have this pointer. Uh, we're basically starting with the same, here we go, yeah, the same things. We have uh, an internal motivation, which Alan didn't actually talk about, and we have an external object. Uh, one has to be hungry for an external object uh, to create craving, but they do come together and create craving, so both are necessary. Uh, in addition, there's a decision process. The decision is, do I act on this craving? And in this case, there's no reason not to eat. Your hungry food's available. That makes a lot of sense. But then there are these other factors. And I would argue that altruism has a biological basis. There is a study of altruism by uh, neurobiologists. There's actually a, a chemistry of it. Uh, so that, that could be an intrinsic factor to the nervous system. Now, in the presence of altruism, and an object of altruism, you now have a conflict. And what I would say is that the basic function of the nervous system is to solve conflicts. It's to do a cost-benefit analysis of the situation. And uh, depending on how hungry you are and how much you care about the hungry child, you may change your decision, decide not to eat, but to actually share your food. So this is... I would say, a, a kind of block diagram of the problem that neuroscience has to solve. And with that, I'd like to launch a little bit into what uh, these, how this goes on in the nervous system. So before I do that, I wanted to, have, to actually create a personal experience for everyone in the audience of what craving is. Uh, and to do that, I, I have a little bit of audience participation uh, that we're all going to engage in. And it's very simple. What I, when I count to four, I want everybody in the audience to take a deep breath and then hold your breath for as long as you can. When you can no longer hold your breath, 
Raise your hand. Okay. Don't have to hold it for a really long time, just long enough to experience the craving. Okay, so we'll start now. I'm going to count to three. One, two, three. Everybody take a deep breath and hold it. And right now you're feeling very comfortable and relaxed. And over time, you're going to feel something arising in your body. But don't let yourself give in to that. What I would suggest is that that feeling is craving. Continue to hold your breath. You will feel that build up to a point where you can no longer resist. You shouldn't resist, right? There is an element of decision here in holding your breath. Now experience what it's like to now take a breath. It's wonderful. You didn't appreciate how good it is. It's all automatic. So now you have had an experience of craving, right? You know what it feels like. Where does that come from? How is that feeling generated? It felt like it was coming from in your body. It felt like it was coming from in your chest. You had this strong desire to inhale. Well, it's very interesting. It's actually not coming from your chest. It's coming from your brain. And our understanding of this began in the 1930s when a couple of neurosurgeons in Montreal, Wilder Penfield and Edwin Baldry, were doing epilepsy for surgery. So they would do a craniotomy, and the patient would then, the anesthetic was allowed to wear off, so the person was awake during this procedure. They would go with an electrode and stimulate different places in the brain. Now, the brain itself is actually insensitive. You can't feel it when it's touched. There are no pain receptors in the brain. So they could put the electrode on the brain in an awake person and actually electrically stimulate. Now, if they stimulated in that part of the brain that represented your hand, they would elicit the perception of the hand by direct electrical stimulation of the brain. So what that tells you is that the brain is like, it's like a library, a directory, if you will, of preformed experience that is then elicited by various things. It could be elicited by an actual stimulus to your hand. It could be elicited by a memory or a dream, something internal to the brain. Doesn't require, you don't require a body to feel your body. And this is by way of illustration that the craving that you feel, while it may be in your body, is actually being generated by the activity of nerve cells. Okay. So what, this, what does this look like at, at a finer grain? Well, you've already seen, Bill presented some images of the brain showing increased blood flow or metabolic activity with increasingly painful stimuli. But how does that come about? What's causing that metabolic demand. Well, if you stimulate in a particular part of the body, say the finger, and that's shown here, a particular part of your cortex, which we call somatosensory cortex, will show blood flow. Uh, but let's look at this at a higher grain, okay? So we do that. This is actually blown up about 30-fold. You can see that each different place that you stimulate creates activity in a slightly different area of the brain. 
Now let's go to an even higher level of resolution. And you can see that just this very tiny part of the brain, it's already, this is already blown up about 30 times. This is another 100 times. It contains a lot of these little things called nerve cells, millions of them. There are probably a billion or more of these nerve cells in your brain. Why is it that electrical stimulation produces this sensation? Part of it is how these cells are connected, but part of it depends on the way the nerve cells themselves work. Okay? So you can then go to what I call the ultimate level of resolution of nervous system function, and that is to record from a single nerve cell. So each one of these is a single nerve cell, and you can take an electrode, and uh, Bill Newsom does this sort of experiment, place it down next to uh, a cell, and if you're close enough, you can see the activity of that cell. One out of the billions of cells in your brain, you can find its activity. It's actually quite robust. It produces these all or none things called action potentials. That's how neurons, nerve cells, encode information. It's in the pattern of firing of their action potentials. Okay. The other thing that's actually critical to understand, quite simple, is that nerve cells, individual nerve cells, each of these billions of nerve cells performs a logical operation. Uh, and it's uh, a symbolic operation. So for example, if cell A excites cell C, okay, we call that uh, an if-then relationship. If cell A is firing, then cell C signals. However, there is another process in the brain called inhibition. So if cell A is firing and cell B is firing, nothing happens because cell B is inhibiting, right? So the logic there is if A is firing but B is not firing, then you get activity. Finally, you may have another setup. I'd say the final type of... Oh, that's it. I went the wrong way. Okay. You can have an and relationship where you need both of these excitatory cells to fire to get this one to fire. So string billions of these little logical operators together, and you have a computer that makes decisions, that does cost-benefit computations. That's how we scientists feel that craving comes about. It's by the wiring of these little electrical logical elements. However, and I totally agree with Alan on this, at that point, something really magical happens. <laughs> No matter where you look, the logical operations and the electrical activity is identical. But some types of electrical activity give rise to Brussels sprouts. Other types of electrical activity give rise to chocolate. This is, I wouldn't say it was magical because I'm a scientist, but I would say it's on the order of something miraculous. And we really don't know how it happens. And it depends on introspection. So we're looking for guidance uh, from our Buddhist, our introspective uh, colleagues to help us understand and to raise new questions for us to investigate using methods of neurobiology. So what are the neurons that produce craving? They're in a particular part of the brain, uh, which we call the motivation circuit. Uh, this is a slide that I stole from uh, Bryant Knudsen, who was one of our uh, panelists. 
And what he found was really very remarkable. When he gave individuals stimuli that indicated different levels of reward, different amounts of money, he found that there was one area of the brain that showed a very robust correlation with the amount of expected money. And that was this area of the ventral striatum called the nucleus accumbens, one of my favorite parts of the brain. Uh, this is the type of activity you see for $5. Uh, and it, uh, if you think about it, it, money is really a broad, general uh, assessment of how you value something. Okay. So this circuit uh, seems to be part of a connection that depends on cells that have dopamine. So that's a specific type of neurotransmitter. Dopamine neurons degenerate in Parkinson's disease and leads to uh, slowness of movement. Uh, and this area of the nucleus accumbens has a very rich dopamine uh, innervation. It also has opioid receptors, and there's evidence that endogenous opioids are released into the nucleus accumbens, and that chemical produces a feeling of reward and craving. So that chemical produces craving. Interestingly enough, uh, in, the, in the 1950s, Olds and Milner placed electrodes in this part of the brain. They were experimenting around, and what they found was when this electrode was activated and then shut off, and the animal was allowed to freely move around an environment, they would always return to the spot where they received that stimulation. And then they said, aha, there's something about stimulating here that these animals like. And so they trained the animals to press a lever to deliver stimuli to that part of the brain, and the animals would work to press that lever. So clearly there is a motivational circuit. That's where we can look. And I would put that circuit uh, right here. Motivational circuit would be here and probably the activity that initiates the sense of craving involves this circuit between the dopamine neurons and the ventral striatum. Okay. One of the ways we know that is that animals will self-administer drugs directly into this reward circuit and that over time there's more and more powerful craving for those drugs that's produced by exposure. So there's some change over time by exposure to drugs in this specific part of the brain. Very good evidence that this is the circuitry that's involved in craving. Drugs will act on this decision process. Okay. Interestingly, you can give drugs that block the craving. So you can inject a drug here that's called a, an antagonist. You can block the rewarding effect of morphine, for example, by giving an opioid antagonist, or nicotine by blocking dopamine at this level. So we are now beginning to understand how chemical interventions can reduce craving where they work in the brain, and it promises new treatments for things like alcoholism, overeating, and uh, drug abuse. So let's go back to really our, our discussion and something that Alan covered toward the end of his uh, brief introduction, which is the decision process and counteracting craving, how one might actually do that. Uh, so let's say that we have this. 
we can use uh, cultural teachings of wisdom and compassion and introspection to enhance our natural altruism, right? And thereby shifting the balance, shifting the relative pull of the craving that one feels and moving it more towards the altruistic decision to not eat, but to share. Okay. So another way one could do this, and this is uh, one that we're very interested in as neuroscientists, how can we intervene in this process chemically? So there's a very interesting new compound called Ramonabond that's made by a French pharmaceutical company. It antagonizes the receptor that marijuana works on. It's called a cannabinoid receptor antagonist. And there's a lot of this receptor throughout the brain. In what they found in their clinical trials is if you give people this drug, they markedly reduce their smoking. They also lose weight. So it seems one of the first genuine drugs targeted on a general craving effect. So one could imagine that with this drug on board, when the food is available, you, it doesn't produce the craving, but instead it enhances what appears to be altruism, but without any of the altruistic uh, parts of the brain firing. So my, one of my questions for His Holiness and our Buddhist scholars is, is this really a good approach? You know, it, it's, it's, it's an alternative. It's an alternative to practice with the same goal. And, you know, in the spirit of inquiry, I ask that question. So uh, with this in mind, I, I want to end by saying, yes, neuroscience is a new uh, science. We have a lot of very powerful tools, and we're definitely in the exponential phase, rising phase of discovery. Things are only going to get more powerful. Yet it still doesn't explain some of the basic phenomena that we as neuroscientists want to understand. These are what the philosophers call qualia, the primary experiences. And my hope is that through introspection and through interaction with our Buddhist colleagues, we will uncover more things to explain. Thank you. Thank you, Howard and Alan. I think you can see that you've heard two talks, one by Alan and one by Howard, and you can see that we're really moving with great deliberation toward trying to understand one another, trying to understand the words we use, trying to define those words, and even building diagrams that allow us to compare words and compare concepts so that we can ultimately work together to make new knowledge happen. I thought at this point we might turn to His Holiness if there were any comments right now, and we could move on after that. Uh, 
Just uh, um, some points for clarification. Um, one is that um, the way in which the neuroscientist understanding of craving. Sorry, I don't know where is the technique. Um, can you hear now? Okay. Um, it's more of a, a question for clarification. Um, um, in your presentation of the neuroscientific perspective on craving, understanding of craving, um, uh, what seems to be different is that from the Buddhist point of view, the craving is a state of mind which, has, which involves a falsification of the reality, superimposition of certain qualities which is not there, whereas the neuroscientific perspective seems to be more of a general. It's a, it's a, it doesn't seem to involve necessarily that element of falsification of the object. So that was one question. And secondly, um, His Holiness was um, wanted to find out that you mentioned that in the case of um, people addicted to nicotine and trying to reduce their craving for a cigarette, you mentioned the possibility of using chemical substances that really blocks and reduces the craving. Um, so does that mean... All desire, desire, want something. In this case, it was for nicotine, for nicotine. smoking, and for food. It's not clear that it would block mm. all craving. That was the question. Yeah. This is wondering whether a chemical approach would have to be very specific to a particular type of craving, or can one envision the possibility of some chemical intervention that would block all forms of craving? Yeah. <laughs> Yes, so I, I, could, I can envision a chemical that... Sorry, yeah. there was another point okay. of clarification, okay. which was uh, maybe we did not hear it correctly, but uh, in your presentation, um, the understanding we, you know, His Holiness and I um, uh, had was on the, on the brain level, on the basis of, on the, on the neuronal level, um, there seems to be a, a kind of a different localization of a craving for chocolate and Brussels sprout. Is that yes. true? Yeah. Yes. Risha. Yes. Yes. Chocolate. So in this case, you, you could imagine a situation where someone has somehow uh, reduced the craving for chocolate through chemical uh, intervention, but still has a strong craving for Brussels sprout. Yeah. <laughs> so... So, yes, yes, well, actually, then, yeah. Well, this, act, this oh. act actually happens. Uh, so let me take the, the three questions in turn. And the first one, in terms of the falsification, uh, this is an extremely interesting question that might be somewhat semantic. So, for example, if I stimulate your, visual, your somatosensory cortex, you have a tingling in your finger. Is that a falsification? I call this a, a, a projection, and to a certain extent, it is an illusion in the real sense, but it's not necessarily a falsification. Yeah. Yeah. 
조진대는 이제 두나로 갔어요. 레바노 这个地方是一个地方。这个地方是一个地方。这个地方是一个地方。这个地方是一个地方。这个地方是一个地方。这个地方是一个地方。这个地方是一个地方。这个地方是一个地方。这个地方是一个地方。这个地方是一个地方。
in the case of uh, um, people with damaged part of the brain, that certain functions of that part of the brain gets gradually taken over by other parts of the brain. So given that understanding, His Holiness was asking, in the case of, say, craving for chocolate as, verse, you know, as opposed to Brussels sprout, um, will that part of the neuron um, only be specific to the chocolate craving, or can it also say... Another you know, time. One can, time, it's a certain place, you see, it developed the craving, kasa, uh, craving uh, for, cho chocolate. for chocolate. Then after one week or one month, the location slight, different, or yes. always fixed. Is it really fixed? The well, the actual uh, taste buds in your tongue, they don't change. So there are connections from the taste buds to a part of your brain that has only responds to chocolate or only responds to Brussels sprouts. But the decision circuit, that changes. That's, so it, it might be the case that the very same neurons that increase their firing for banana under one situation would increase their firing for chocolate under a different situation. This is possible. But it's an, it, this is an experimental question. This is a question to actually Bill Mobley's uh, presentation. Um, you mentioned that uh, talking about the empathy and, and, and you mentioned that the, brain, the part of the brain where it gets activated when you experience an empathy towards a suffering person seems to be also the same part of the brain that is involved in registering your own uh, pain. Yes. Uh, and His Holiness was asking that given that the two experiences are so different, right. you know, different causes and different... Mm -hmm. So how, how can... How, you know, how, how do you account for this? Similarity? This is a very interesting question. Philippe, I think, has a, a way of responding. In, in neuroscience, we have this idea in talking about the brain, about neural context. So one part of the brain can be active when I ex when I am experiencing pain myself. Another part, the same part of the brain, can be active when I'm experiencing when I'm perceiving pain in someone else. But there are other the other influence of other parts of the brain that contribute. So the same exact t tissue or the same neba, the same exact uh, piece of brain, can actually perform different functions depending on the context. Bill Newsom, did you have a point you wanted to make? Yeah, I do have a question. Was there a response? I don't know. I don't want to interrupt. Um, as, as a scientist, I'm struck uh, 
by some of the methodological differences in the way we approach truth. And one thing that some of us have discussed in meetings leading up to this is the role of introspection. So in science and medicine, we certainly use first-person introspection. Uh, Bill and Howard are doctors, and if you go into one of their offices, they're not going to say, let's put you in the brain scanning machine and see how you feel today. They're going to ask you, how do you feel today, right? So the first-person introspection is important, and yet in the psychology laboratory, we can show that first-person introspection often fails. So it fails in sensory domain, and that's what visual illusions and auditory illusions are about. But introspection can fail in memory domains and attention domains. So a psychologist shows you the words BA and says, complete that with the first word that comes to mind, and you say banana. And the psychologist says, well, why did you say banana? He says, oh, it's my favorite fruit. But you can actually demonstrate statistically that you said banana in part because that psychologist surreptitiously exposed you to the word banana earlier in the session. Uh, so introspection can break down, and while we frequently start from introspection, we don't end there. And I, I've had some conversations with Alan about limits to introspection as a method, and I wonder, you know, what the Buddhist, uh, what the Buddhist orientation toward that is, where, where introspection is such a key part of the method. Where does it have limits, and what are those limits? I'd like to start that, a starter response there, and that is among our six modes of perception. And normally, we, I think we often speak of only five, but six modes of perception, the, our five sensory faculties, but then another mode of perception by means of which we can actually observe or attend to what's taking place in the mind, so introspection, metacognition. Uh, from, I think, a Buddhist perspective, our five physical senses are not very malleable as a result of training. They can certainly be extended with technology, which is fantastic, but you can do eye exercises, and your eyes will not get all that much better. Whereas when it comes to mental perception, the, or introspection, metacognition, from a Buddhist perspective, this is our one mode of perception that actually the Buddhist hypothesis is it's very, very malleable. It can be trained, especially when one kind of pictures it up to a professional level, like getting a PhD in neuroscience, get a PhD in developing introspective abilities, but it's following exactly in the theme of William James. He pointed out, in his view, introspection should be first, foremost, and always the primary way of investigating mental phenomena, but he said this mode of perception is as fallible as any other mode of perception. Your instruments in the lab are rational faculties and so forth, but I think what Buddhism brings to the table here, as again, as an empirical challenge, is the possibility of refining and extending introspection. So at first flush, we get a very superficial take on what's happening in the mind, and that superficial take may be very misleading or simply mistaken, but with training, perhaps that ability can be honed. And that could then rise to a level of sophistication, in principle, matching the sophistication of the psychologists and neuroscientists. So we have three companions coming as, as co-conspirators to unravel, un unravel the mystery of the mind, rather than leaving introspection in the hands of amateurs. <laughs> Carl, I'm I wonder if you'd res respond to that as well and, and, and speak a little bit about what you can imagine the sort of collaborative effort between neuroscientists and Buddhists might do to help understand better first-person introspection and to validate the reports that we get. Any thoughts along those lines? Well, especially, I think, if we're uh, considering those Buddhists, uh, a minority to be sure, who are advanced adepts in contemplative arts, uh, they provide possibilities for uh, scientific experimentation, I think, uh, that other 
others might not. That is to say, they're not the ordinary subject who is as subject to fallibility as you would with a uh, typical subject because precisely of what Alan is talking about. They, they uh, claim, at least, to be able to attain states in which certain aspects of ordinary perception are suspended, which we can't do, but they say can be done if you train yourself. If that's possible, that they can retain certain psychological states, uh, we can ask them to do that for us and see what the differences are between those states and the states of the ordinary subject. And I think that's one of the most promising areas if we're talking practically about how Buddhists and neuroscientists could work together uh, that gives Buddhism a, a particular, I don't know what you'd say, cachet as a possible uh, subject for uh, neuroscientific investigation. Brian, I wonder if you'd chime in on that point, because you've had personal experience in your laboratory and carrying out experiments that are at least relevant to asking, to answering this question. Yeah, on the topic of introspection, uh, just from a neuroscience and a psychology standpoint, I think introspection is an old tradition in psychology. Uh, and Bill, you use these methods. Brian Wandell, who will be here this afternoon, uses these methods called psychophysics, in which uh, you finally develop your introspection uh, by looking at, say, a sensory stimulus, two sensory stimuli side by side, one is bright, one is dark, and you ask the subject, which is bright, which is dark, and you gradually uh, make those stimuli more similar until the subject can no longer discriminate. So that's a very specific type of introspection that you do um, that has been around in psychology f for a long time. Now, one possibility, when we talk about craving, that seems much more amorphous and fuzzy. Uh, but it might be the case that we could have people, Buddhists and others, who become adept at introspecting on how I'm responding to this stimulus. How am I responding to this cigarette pack or this cigarette that's in an ashtray smoking or something like that. I don't think that's uh, a consideration for many people in da daily life, but I don't see why we couldn't investigate that. So I just wanted to point out that I think there are traditions of introspection both in psychology and neuroscience and in Buddhism and perhaps they can inform each other. Hmm. Karma, any thoughts that you have about this? I would like to turn to Kamen Lekishomo, because the theme for this morning is craving and choice. And Buddhism, as you know, has a tremendous array of practices for intervening when we encounter objects that could quite possibly arouse craving. Could you elaborate perhaps a little bit on how this introspective ability and just the, the array of other practices might enable one to use one's, one's ability of choice and avert craving? I think Buddhism has something up its sleeve there. Well, I think there are two basic things here, practices that could be very helpful. One is the practice of mindfulness and awareness, and the other is the development of wisdom or understanding. So first of all, the Buddhists would go back to a basic understanding of what we mean by the mind or consciousness and explain, as you did, the five sense consciousnesses and the mental consciousness and the process by which the consciousness arises. For example, we have the five, what they call the five sense faculties, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and mental perception um, on top of it. So understanding how these, um, our experience arises on the contact between the sense faculty and the object. 
and then understanding how our mental perception, because it's not a clean lens, our minds are contaminated or tinted or tainted by uh, this whole three clusters of emotions or emotional afflictions. The first cluster is desire, attachment, craving. Um, and the second cluster being aversion, hatred, anger, irritation. The third cluster being confusion, ignorance, and so forth. So to understand the process by which we superimpose our expectations on the object so that we develop aversion to an ordinary human being, one human being, and an attachment or craving for the other. So this is basic development of understanding, understanding the process of perception. And then we can intervene, understanding how we can intervene in that process. The, the Buddha taught a lot about volition and motivation. So I think both of these two come into play. As you were talking about the motivation of altruism, that can completely transform our decision-making process. And um, similarly, uh, this um, volition can change at any time. At any moment, we can change our decision. I mean, this was the Buddhist sort of radical reinterpretation of the theory of cause and effect, is that it's, it's now that matters. And in this moment, we can make choices uh, for our own benefit, the benefit of ourselves and others, or otherwise. <laughs> Howard, you had, a, you had a question that I think you posed to the Buddhist scholars about if you had the ability to use a drug that was really quite specifically focused on a kind of craving, would that be okay? Would that be a drug they would accept? And I wonder which of the, our colleagues would like to answer that. Alan? Sure. <laughs> Some craving there, I think. First of all, I think it's very important to recognize that when the, when the Buddhists are using the term craving, we do have, we're building into that definition a notion of a misapprehension of reality, whereas when we're all holding our breaths, uh, it was a good thing that craving, or let's say simply desire, kicked in. And we wouldn't want a drug that would counteract that desire and then we'd hold our breaths and then forget about breathing. That could be disadvantageous. And so if there was some very powerful craving that especially perhaps had a especially predominantly biological influence on it, that is, it wasn't so clear that it was from social influences and so forth, I would imagine, simply as speaking from one Buddhist perspective, my own, it might in the short term be potentially beneficial to take a drug that would attenuate that craving. On the other hand, if the craving springs right back as soon as you start taking the drug, then you'll develop a craving for the drug. And now you've gotten yourself into a loop. Maybe you can find another drug to alleviate that craving, and now you've got yourself into an endless spiral. But I think the Buddhist take on craving is that it's, it's got a deeper source than itself, and that is craving arises from what Kamala Chisoma was talking about, from delusion, from ignorance, in our pursuit of genuine happiness. When we enter into craving, that's actually coming out of a misapprehension of reality, mistaking the actual source of well-being. And so if one were to take a drug that would simply suppress the symptoms of what Buddhists call craving, let alone other kind of desires that may be very useful, taking a drug, it would, it would relieve you temporarily of maybe the distress, the anxiety, the sense of lack of fulfillment, and so forth, that stems immediately from that craving. But the drug anesthetizing the craving 
may also prevent you from developing the wisdom that would overcome the delusion that acts as the cross of craving. Please. On that and, and suggest the possibility that the, the drug that reduces the craving allows you the time to, for contemplation and wisdom. And that is, it would be, to I think, a parallel, people who are suffering from attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. There, I'm, I'm sure there are cases where the symptoms are so severe that if you got, gave them some Buddhist meditative practices, they would say, well, those are all very well, but I can't do them. Whereas they might take Ritalin, help suppress the symptoms, and gradually, my ideal would be, wean them off the drug. In a similar fashion, if a person is suffering from very severe craving, you gave them the drug that temporarily atten attenuated the symptoms of the craving and then helped them get to the root. We can work together on that one. Hearing is openness to putting this to an experimental test no, to no, see no, what. No, <laughs> Do we have any volunteers? <laughs> Maybe a lot. But I, want to, I also want to try to make more of a connection here in terms of um, specific aspects of training. So wisdom is already quite high, but just in terms of attentional training, both from a Buddhist perspective. And also, and, and, and also from a Western perspective, but thinking about an experiment where you, you intentionally induce craving in someone, or the, and, and then what are the specific uh, methods that a person can use to do top-down regulation to first become aware, I am craving. I'm thinking of your figure. I am craving. So first there has to be this moment of uh, recognition. Then the application of specific strategies, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, actually saying which strategies might work actually initiate them, implement them, then continually assessing, is this working? Be it changing the meaning of the object that I crave, the chocolate is not that important, or thinking about the long-term consequences, all of which require higher-order cognitive thinking, which will impact the nucleus accumbens, because we know there's exquisite interconnectivity. So the specific Buddhist practices that influence aspects of attention, that we can measure in the brain. I think that's one of the very fruitful points of interface, or at least potential interface, between Buddhism and, and psychology and neuroscience. And that is, Buddhists, I mean, I think healthy-minded Buddhists are very pragmatic. We're not simply trying to memorize a creed, get, right, get all the right answers because we have the correct belief system, but actually take the theories and practices, apply them, and actually suffer less and find greater mental balance. And so we have our own first-person perspectives, but as Bill has pointed out, first-person perspective introspection can sometimes be tragically in error. And even our close companions, especially if they're our friends, they may also mis-evaluate. And so if we could draw, if Buddhist practitioners could draw on the expertise, the third-person expertise of psychology, potentially neuroscience, to help us identify which type of general spiritual practices, more specifically meditative practices, actually work, give us some third-person corroboration of what works, that would be a tremendous service to any contemplative tradition, not just Buddhism. You know, one of the things that came up uh, in our phone discussions were the sense that this third-person perspective allows us to collect immense amounts of data from several different kinds of experiments, all looking at one uh, piece of truth and ultimately coming to the sense that probably it's true what we're studying here. We can really say that A goes to B. We have a kind of a validating method that's quite robust. But when I pushed that on Alan and, and pushed it on Carl, it, they came back, but we also 
have a way of judging efficacy. We also have a way of judging uh, the truth of our experiments, of our probing. And I just thought, Carl, if you might just say a little bit about what's the peer review system look like in Buddhism? It doesn't look good. <laughs> I think one of the things in the discussions leading up to this event uh, that we talked about was something along the lines of the distinction that His, Holiest, His Holiness made when he said Buddhism has a scientific element, it has a philosophical element, and it has a religious element. And as you might guess, if you think about that, it's very, very difficult to take those apart in practice. That means that contemplatives in a Buddhist community, while they may be seeking uh, empirical evidence for the truths of their religion, are doing so in a context that is religious and is philosophical. These are not simply explorers of the inner world. They go in there looking for certain things for certain purposes that are based on their tradition, their norms of their tradition, the texts of their tradition, the teachings of their masters. So they do have a method rather different right, uh, from the scientific method. For example, if a student goes into a certain contemplative state and finds something that is not verified by the tradition, the master may well say, not, that's interesting, we should change the tradition, but you did the practice wrong. Go back in there until you find what you're supposed to find. In other words, it has a normative, ethical, religious quality to, the, to these. So uh, that means then that the, what, peer review is very heavily based on a tradition of what is, what the Buddha taught, what the philosophers of Buddhism have come up with, uh, that from a scientific point of view, I think we'll look rather, I mean, in an extreme case, something like creation science. That is to say, a certain norms that are basic and cannot be questioned. Uh, and so, from a scientific point of view, I think the peer review system within traditional Buddhism needs greatly to be modified before we can talk about it in relationship to a, a scientific laboratory. But can this dialogue that we're talking about inform that? Definitely. Mature that? Definitely. And support that? Jimpo, just your thoughts about this. Your own thoughts, please. <laughs> I've come to rely on Tupton Jimpo. He's a fantastic friend. Tupton, I, I never speak okay. on my own. His Holiness, would, if he would speak. And the Shadan Raman, the Pajit, 
Perhaps um, there's a distinction made in the Buddhist thought between different types of facts of reality, which may be relevant to the point here. Um, one of which is um, evident facts, which are basically empirical facts. Then you have facts which are inferred um, through a process of reasoning. Then there's a third level of facts which in the Buddhist thought are referred to as uh, accessible only to a, um, a third person based on third, third person testimony. So here scripture would come in. Now, on the... No. But at least there is a consensus within the Buddhist thought that insofar as the first level of reality is concerned, which is the empirical facts, uh, this should be universal. You know, one may differ in the interpretation. So, of course, uh, this, when, it, when we talk about the interpretation of the facts, then we, the philosophy comes in. And then, of course, historical development of Buddhist thought demonstrates the diversity of philosophical thinking in, in the Buddhist tradition. But insofar as the empirical facts are concerned, at least in principle, there is a recognition that the facts are facts, you know, however you may describe them. So, uh, so it is really on this, primarily on this first level of empirical facts, the evident facts, what the Buddhists call the evident facts, that the dialogue with science really takes place. Now, in the second level, which is the inferred facts, there might be some parts of that which also figures in the dialogue, partly because in the ancient past, many of these, for example, the, 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 the subatomic level of matter or um, um, the kind of um, the dynamic nature of physical reality, these were only inferred. They were not accessible to the empirical experience. Now, as a result of advance in technology, we, we have science as a tremendous instrument to analyze these, uh, which for the Buddhist are inferred facts, but these can also fall into this domain of discourse. One problem that His Holiness was saying is... Uh, <laughs> 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 
So the problem that um, one big problem that His Holiness sees in this kind of dialogue, in at least this particular dialogue, is listening to the two different perspectives on the definition of craving. Uh, there's a big difference here, which is in Alan's presentation, it became quite clear that the craving is a distorted form of a certain dysfunction of emotion, a dysfunctional emotion which involves misapprehension of reality. So it belongs to the category of based what is called... Based on ignorance. Based on ignorance. And also oh. it belongs to the category of afflictions. Oh. Whereas in uh, your presentation, craving is really... Has, it doesn't general, have that... It's general, more, more general. Desire. Desire. Oh. So therefore there can be cravings of different kinds. Um, so among the desire, there can be something which are sound, you know, uh, reasonable, something which are unsound forms of desire and craving, so according to your definition. Yes. So, so here the problem is the language. <laughs> How do we... And when we have two different definitions using the same term, His Holiness is saying that he feels caught in between. Yes. <laughs> so confused. So, for example, if we define craving in a general sense, then it will have a different kind of definition. But if we define craving with the assumption that it is already an afflicted, state of mind, then it will have a, a different flavor to it. So only just pointing out here, there just seems to be a little bit of a, um, a ship's crossing in the night, so to speak, because, Howard, when you speak of craving, I mean, it's simply desire. The Buddhists wouldn't want to overcome all Buddhist. There's no Buddhist ideal of overcoming all kinds of desires, hmm? altruistic desires. Desire. There are positive desires, there are neutral desires. You get thirsty, you want to drink, you're out of breath, you want to, get, you want to breathe in. So we don't want to overcome those desires. So we're wondering, do we simply go on parallel tracks? The Buddhists have this definition, which we'd like to be free of altogether, in principle, but we don't want to be free of desire altogether. So do we try to find a common definition, or do we simply say, well, we're going to use the word in two different ways, depending on context? Well, we have the choice of using two different words or using the same word to describe two different things. I would prefer to have two different words. I don't know what they would be. However, one could say that under the general heading of craving, I would accept that there are unhealthy levels of craving rather than afflictive so that um, a, a craving to smoke a cigarette can only be harmful uh, a craving to have one glass of wine might be good a craving to have four glasses of wine might be unhealthy and so it might be very easy in an empirical way to say which cravings are unhealthy but then there's the spiritual level which the, the neuroscientist isn't really going to hold forth on, on that. That would be, we would say that would be subjective 
and uh, might differ depending on your cultural tradition. Some practices, which may not be physically unhealthy, would be considered by one tradition to be afflictive and by another tradition to be healthy. So that's where we have to bow out as neuroscientists. Brian, did you want to make a point? Is it, from the Buddhist standpoint, would it be fair to say that craving is due to a miscalibration of desire? Is that a fair restatement? It's a matter of amplitude, no. It's, it's not simply a matter of, of degree, it's a, a matter of type. The type of desire. Now, when, when, when uh, Howard was speaking of craving, that would be cl very closely corresponding to what the, in Tibetan is simply dhaba, simply desire. And there are, there are unhealthy desires, neutral desires, very healthy desires, desires that are conducive to one's physical well-being, but also desires that are or are not conducive to your mental well-being, mental health, mental balance, independently of having pleasurable or unpleasurable stimuli coming in. So we can return this to an empirical question rather than having purely, purely a religious or cultural one. Just to come back to that, uh, are there any forms of desire that are not a form of suffering? Oh, I, would, I would be happy to return <laughs> that to the strongest. Desire that. So his was asking, so according to your understanding and definition, would you equate craving with desire? Yes, I think that would be closer. But the, but the question is, are there any desires that are not a form of suffering? Okay. So then, what, what, getting back to Alan's point, if there are healthy desires, how can, and all desires are uh, an aspect of suffering, how can they not be afflictive? I want to debate with His Holiness now. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, in the, Buddhist, in the Buddhist context, we have highly developed bodhisattvas. No, no, His Holiness said there can be desires that are not suffering. Ah, His Holiness. Oh, okay. Yeah. Then okay. I have no debate with His Holiness. Okay. <laughs> there can, this is a, a crucial point. That is, altruism, for example, the Buddha has desires to alleviate the suffering of others. Highly developed bodhisattvas on the Buddhist path have desires, a myriad of desires. It doesn't necessarily imply suffering. Okay. Yeah. Good. Tibetan even, because when you say mimba, it means aspiration, and it's a higher aspiration for liberation or enlightenment or to liberate the sufferings of sentient beings. It's a totally different word than devo or dicha. You know, this is a wonderful conversation, but... Um, we're, we're running out of time for the morning. One last word from His Holiness, I think, would be just exactly right. One last word, if we could, and then we should stop for the morning. Any last word? Hmm. <laughs> Until the confusion is re removed, <laughs> not much to say. Okay. <laughs> Bill, I wonder, Bill Newsom, I wonder if you might just, just say a couple of words in summary. So uh, one thing I would say in summary is that I was feeling very uncomfortable during that discussion a while ago about uh, drugs and denial and such because uh, my cholesterol was rising quite a bit over the last few years and my doctor told me I had to do something about it. 
and uh, he said I needed to start exercising, cut down some of the excesses in my diet. I also interpreted it as a mandate to have one glass of red wine every day. Um, and um, still, my cholesterol kept rising. And he said, "Okay, now you've got a cho chance between you've got a choice between making radical changes in your diet or taking a little white pill, Lipitor, every day for the rest of your life." And I said, "Write me a prescription." Uh, <laughs> maybe I haven't achieved the level of awareness that I need to need to achieve yet. Um, the discussion has been interesting this morning because we've clearly seen two very different definitions of craving from the neuroscience and medical perspective here in the West with a, a lot of our addiction problems to all kinds of substances. Howard has highlighted that particular meaning of the word craving, an, an overpowering desire for some substance, and we are actually making success, having success, as Howard told you, at identifying the systems in the brain that are underlying some of that craving, and we're starting to ask uh, increasingly interesting questions about them. On the other hand, from the Buddhist perspective, we have a very different sort of definition of craving, which is a higher level uh, perspective that involves implying faults um, attributes to an object of desire. And this is, this is obviously a, a much higher level form of craving that neuroscience is not ready to address yet. But the things that I found in common between the two is that they all involve choice. So in treating addiction and understanding motivational systems in the brain, we hope to liberate patients uh, in medical situations from slavery to particular substances and actually create the potential for choice. But in the Buddhist tradition, it's apparent that they want to also create greater potential for choice by being aware of the sorts of things that influence us in everyday lives. So I appreciate that commonality. I also appreciate the, the uh, Buddhist's commitment to empiricism, the fact that if something is true in practice introspectively, it has mechanisms in the brain, and if something's not true, we will abandon it. I find that a very... Uh, a very um, robust basis for a dialogue between Buddhism and neuroscience. And I also must say I appreciate the uh, courage of the dean of the School of Medicine and Bill Mobley here in, in hosting this event today. There are many of my colleagues as scientists who would say science should have nothing to do with religion and this, this dialogue is not appropriate. And I think it's actually courageous for the School of Medicine to do this. But for me as a scientist, science is a discipline and it's a practice. And I think Buddhists can relate to that. It's a, it's a method for uh, seeking after truth, a particular kind of truth. It can't seek after, ultimately after all kinds of truth. I can never imagine a situation where we can do a scientific experiment that would answer the question, is it better to live or to die, for example. Answers to those kinds of questions that are important to all of us uh, necessarily involve other kinds of inquiry and other kinds of discipline. So science has never been an ideology or a religion to me, and I don't want to replace anyone else's religion or ideology with science, but what I do have the conviction is that science can inform everyone's religion and ideology, and that religious practice, as we've seen today, poses challenges and can inform science. And so on, on that basis, I'm deeply gratified by what has happened here today and in the meetings preparing for this particular event. Thanks, Bill. It's, uh, 
real friends have a chance to work with words, understand words, build new definitions that work for both. And at this point, you're seeing friends get together and try to sort things out. And it's very exciting and very rewarding for me to be here. This is the end of the morning session. With that, good morning, and we'll see you this afternoon. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.